All right. So last week, I, I don't really remember what happened, but I, I didn't really crack much of what I wanted to talk about. So we're going to wrap up that conversation from last week. Um, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. As you're turning there, I just want to um, tell you that so far, we haven't gotten any serious blowback from the message that we preached on, uh, or the message that I taught on Sunday morning. I've had a lot of people reach out and say it was very helpful and informative. And uh, I said this in the message, and now I'm prepared to do it. If you want a copy of the articles that I sourced for a lot of that work, I'd be more than happy to get it to you. Um, I have to make rough photocopies, but they would be available for you, and you can kind of look through the information on your own. Um, I was just talking with Trent about a new series that I'm going to be starting. It'll be about three or four weeks. Depending on how much we cover in the second week, we'll determine whether we need a fourth study. But we're going to do the same type of approach. We're going to define faith. We're going to define saving faith. We're going to define non-saving faith and a reformer's term called spurious faith. And I think this is important because I've, I've just come across a lot recently that people don't know what it means to believe. And that's a sad thing. It's a sad thing because the devil has so complicated something that we do every day. Uh, but I think it's good to define it and look at faith and see how faith is used in the Bible. How does it apply in the context of salvation? And it's going to be more than just looking at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and Romans 5, 1. We know those passages, but we're going to look at what the Bible talks about faith and belief outside of salvation. So we have a model of what the word means. Words do matter, especially when we are hanging our eternal life on the words of Jesus Christ. We need to make sure we understand what he says. And the reformers back in the 1500s, they have destroyed simple language in a knee-jerk reaction to Catholicism. Boy, I want to really encourage you, if you get a chance to study church history, to do it. Dr. Phil Stringer uh, has written great books on church history. I think he has four uh, textbooks on the issue. And he walks you through how everything went from the first church in Jerusalem all the way to where we are right now. And you can see very quickly where the train got off the tracks. And you wonder, why are there Lutherans? Why are there Pentecostals? Why are there... Plymouth Brethren, all that kind of stuff. Where does that happen? It happens because people depart from the Word and begin to define words for themselves. And that's where everything be, you know, becomes a problem. I say that before we study because that's what we're going to do tonight. This is what I wanted to do last week, but we're going to define these words that are in Proverbs 8.13 because this is where I feel, I strongly believe from my experience and also from what the Word has shown as a record this is where you can be successful. It's funny. There's so many uh, massive Ponzi schemes going on right now. I'm talking millions and millions of dollars around cryptocurrency. I don't know how many of you are familiar with cryptocurrency, but boy, when it was really in its heyday around late 2020 through 2021 and into 2022, I mean, people were being swindled out of money left and right, and all this is now coming to the surface. And you find out that what a lot of people, what got a lot of people to spend their money is this idea of material wealth and success. 
They've got a guy on there who's got a fresh haircut. He's got a brand new Lamborghini. He's got the big gold chain. He's got all the things that young people would look at and say, that's the definition of success. I need that to be successful. And then they'll say things like, for a $2,000 investment, I guarantee you a $100,000 return. And people buy into it. And so they go blindly, they spend their money, and they end up three or four years later with nothing. And a lot of time and a lot of money wasted. But people would say, well, you just didn't have the right method. You didn't apply it correctly. So now try this program where I, just for $1,500 instead of $2,000, now I'll guarantee you $100,000. People are looking for success in all the wrong places. A lot of our, finance, excuse me, a lot of our educational institutions today, they don't teach real educational material anymore. They teach corrupted versions of the truth, revisionist history, all that kind of stuff. And you can see it playing out in our politics where many of our politicians don't know much about the United States of America, but they can tell you what you want to hear. And so we kind of sit at the table of the newsroom and just you know, pick and choose what we want to eat, and that's how we vote, and that's how we uh, you know, define success as a nation. But if you look at people right now, America, yes, we do have freedoms and we do have a lot of opportunities, but people are struggling to put things together. Um, that's not because of a political system. That's not because of the value of the dollar. That's just because what we think is successful is not successful. In this chapter, which is what we talked about last week about money and monetary uh, gain does not always equal wisdom, there is a foolproof guarantee for wisdom and success, and it's, I believe it's in verse 13. I want you to read this verse with me, and then we'll chat through the words But Proverbs chapter 8 in verse 13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Now wisdom is speaking here personified as a woman who is calling out for students. She's calling out for people to hear and understand. And she says here that the fear of the Lord is these things. And specifically, the action is to hate these things. This has already been mentioned before, but this is one of the first times that very specifically we see a connection now between wisdom, hatred, and obedience. And I I want you to see this for a moment. Just hold your spot. Go to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, and you're going to see here the same thing is said in a different word and of a different group of people in verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you go back to chapter 8, in verse 13, you see the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the forward map do I hate. I wrote this down in my notes. Fools hate wisdom and instruction. And you can see this. A person who is unwise or a person who is foolish has a problem doing what they are told to do. It, start, it starts out with each one of us as kids. We have a rebellious nature. Mom and dad tell us to do something, we choose to disobey. And that is expressed very early. Well, for many people, that continues on into adulthood, where they have their own way of thinking. A lot of the pride movement that we studied you know, last Sunday, they have gone against what science and nature very clearly teaches. And they've gone against it so strongly that they're willing to do anything to get their way. Even go through these genetic, or uh, these uh, surgeries that 
mutilate them beyond any kind of repair, that's how dead set they are against the instruction of natural things. Why is it? Well, because people like that, I'm not just saying people in the pride movement, but everybody who rejects God's instruction, they are fools. They are fools. Why? Because they reject God's teaching. And so if you want to be successful, the first thing that you should do is know what God teaches. You need to be in his classroom. You need to be under his tutelage. You need to make sure that when the class is in session, which it it is never out of session, that you're attentive. I tell people most of the time, if you want to see spiritual growth, start coming to the Sunday night, Wednesday night services. Because you're going to see and learn more with the expectation of application. And then if you still feel like you need more, get involved in a ministry. Then you'll be in the spiritual weightlifting room. Then you'll see what it's like, the value that is added when you know the word. But many people don't even make that first step. Many people are just sufficient with one service a week, and then they go about their business. I'm not criticizing those people. I'm just saying if there's an opportunity to hear the word taught, you should be there. You should take advantage of that opportunity. Do you remember what it was like in 2020 when the only opportunity you had was on a screen? I absolutely despised that time. It was the saddest time to be here on a Sunday morning in the 1030 slot, what I had done for years, and look out and nobody's here. And just see the coldness of an optical lens zoomed in from up there. It was sad. And when the opportunity came for us to have fellowship again, I craved it and realized how easily I had discounted simple church attendance to be in fellowship with one another. Now here we are together tonight. And I think, I'll speak for myself, I take this so much as a, as a treat that I did before. And a lot of things changed from 2020 to 2021. I wasn't a pastor in 2020. Now I'm a pastor. So things have diff- are different. The perspective is different. But if you're taking notes here, hate This word defined is to dislike greatly, to have aversion to. So when you see fools hate wisdom and instruction, it means fools greatly dislike wisdom and instruction. The wise, or those who have the fear of the Lord, greatly dislike what this verse says, which is evil, pride, arrogancy, evil ways, and froward teachings. Now, I said this a little bit last week, but I want to go into it deeper tonight. These are things that should be shown in action. Okay, It's not enough to simply know these things. You can know what the fear of the Lord is. You can have knowledge of what is right compared to what is wrong. You can know all the warnings, all the beneficial things, but where it will matter is in what you do. And I want to show that to you since we have time. Go to James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1, he's writing to the early church, and his letter is one of rebuke. There is some encouragement, but most of James' writing is to rebuke. They were partial. They said one thing and did another. They expected their faith to be sufficient to save them from judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, but their faith was dead. It was useless because it was not backed up by action. I want you to see here in verse 
uh, 22, James chapter 1 and verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man unto he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, a man looking at his reflection in the mirror, for he beholdeth, he sees himself and goeth his way. He sees his condition, does not make changes, goes his own way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. In the illustration here, the man is the believer, the natural or excuse me, the glass is the word. And this believer comes to the teaching of the word, he sees himself as God describes him in his condition, not his position in Christ, but his spiritual condition right now, his ongoing sanctification. He sees it, and he goes right back to what he's doing. That's somebody who hates instruction and wisdom. He knows it all. He's looking at it right there. But he doesn't make the changes. So now that the example has been set of a foolish believer we have in verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, again, the perfect law of liberty, referring to the glass there, this is in Christ, and continueth therein, there's the difference. You continue under that law of liberty. He being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It's very important that you not only look at the tools that are needed to do the job, but you put a tool in your hand. I, I'm smiling because I distinctly remember conversations like this when I was a teenager, and there was yard work to be done. Okay, I remember my, I'm pretty sure that it was my uncle who taught me how to use a lawnmower. And I remember there was a time where the lawnmower came out of his hand and it was in my hand now. Now, I was responsible to do everything that I had been taught. I made all the mistakes, running over the stumps, not moving rocks and pebbles and all sorts of stuff. And there were times where I thought, I don't want to move the little pebble or the little stone. I'm going to just roll over it and it'll be fine. And it shoots out and hits the house or it breaks the mower. I've broken a mower running over a stump before. Because I had the instruction, but I didn't do it. Okay, I put the tool in my hand, that's great, but I didn't continue on in the training that I had received. There were consequences because of that. And when I'd have to answer to my parents as to why the lawnmower is broken, I know why it's broken. Because I did not do what I was supposed to do. It's the same thing with our spiritual walk. Why is there brokenness in the fellowship? Why is it hard? Sometimes people will say, well, I just don't feel close to God. And I'll ask the question, well, who moved? Who changed in this relationship? Now, a person who wants to see restoration will take that well. But a person who despises instruction, trust me, been in that meeting before, they'll criticize you for being harsh and callous. But it's the truth. Who's more likely to change? The believer or God? I've got a verse that says God is immutable. He does not change. I've got another verse that says that our faith is weak. That we need help. But if you feel kind of like dead in church, you know, like calloused, hard-hearted and stuff, you, you, you need to explore why that is. Most likely it's because there's some sin 
Are there some things that you should be doing that you're not doing, which is also sin? You need to correct those things in order to get back on track. Not, oh, I'm going to heaven again, but to have fellowship with the Lord now. I want you to look in verse 5 of the same chapter. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You know, to ask requires humility. A prideful man doesn't ask. He assumes he knows everything. He assumes I've got... I don't need to ask anybody. I know exactly what I'm doing. And then when you ask of God here, he giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not, and it says, that man. Who is that man? That's the person that does not ask in faith. He asks, he's described as the, the middle of verse 6, wavering. He says he understands, but he's not sure. He, he feels like there's still something that causes him mistrust with God. He's not fully trusting God for this problem, for this solution. That man has a guarantee. You will receive nothing that he shall receive anything of the Lord, the end of verse 7. And now this man, is, he's been described as that man. He's been described as the one who wavers. And now he has a final designation here, which is a double-minded man. And this is not someone who flip-flops politically or something like that. You know, like they have one opinion here and then an opinion for someone else. This is not a two-faced person. This is a person who his mind is not set. He knows what God has said, but he does not believe it. A lot of people I talk to, after they, a lot of people that struggle with the definition of believe are people who are saved, but they're double-minded. They've created this dichotomy with God that there's like this, there's like this, you guys know that Geico commercial, it's very old now, but it's the old man in the corner and he's got a fishing line or a, a fishing pole and he's dangling a dollar over people. And they go to reach for it, and he pulls it back, and like, you know, well, that'd be quicker than that. That's how some people think God is, that he's dangling the word believe and salvation by grace, and they go in faith to receive it, and he's like, gotta be quicker than that. That's not God. How does that caricature of God happen? The devil, the world, people who tell us one thing, and then they don't do it. This is why Ecclesiastes has such a harsh thing against vows. If you vow a vow, you ought to keep it. And if you're not ready to do what the vow says, close the mouth and don't vow. And people who do vow a vow and break it, the consequences are serious. Why? Because that's, the, that's all we have is our word. That's all we have. Think about a marriage that's lasted solid for 25 years and then there's infidelity. It takes one moment, it takes one act of adultery to ruin, absolutely destroy years of trust. One act, and it cannot be easily restored again. The double-minded man, verse 8, is unstable in all of his ways. So go back to Proverbs chapter 8 in verse 13. Let's continue to define some words here. We've defined the word hate. Now we're going to look at the word evil. There's evil and evil way that is used in this verse. 
Those two are synonymous. Pride and arrogance, also the same thing. So we're going to define evil and we're going to define pride. There are two kinds of evil. There is the natural and the moral. Okay, The natural evil is anything that produces pain, distress, loss, or calamity, or which disturbs the peace, impairs the happiness, or destroys the perfection of natural beings. Think about the heinous acts that are committed by serial killers against the body. These things that people do that are grotesque, inhumane, and the best definition for it is evil. Or a person who knowingly, willfully causes harm against somebody else. That's an evil thing. What's done to children in the womb, many people accurately would describe that as an evil thing. I don't encourage you to go and research this, but if you were to research some forms of abortion, it, it, all the forms of abortion are cruel. But there are some that are grotesque that meet the category of evil, and I don't know how people can do that. And I mean doctors that attended that. I just cannot imagine. But we have all types of evil. Gun violence is an extension of the evil nature in man, doing against that which is natural. But then you have the moral evil, and for, for, for there to be evil morality, there has to be good. Otherwise, it's all things. You know, for example, if I brought my nephew up here and I slapped him in the face to where it caused him pain, if there is no good morality, then what I did is just a thing. There should be nothing behind what I did and his reception of what I did. It's just a thing. Is that real? Do we see that in the world? It, no, there is a good morality and there is an evil morality. How are those things set up? By God. So evil, more, uh, evil in a moral sense is any deviation from, uh, of a moral agent from the rules of conduct prescribed to him by God. Thou shalt not lie. Lying, as much as we want to dismiss it, is a morally evil thing. This is why when Jesus says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, you begin to realize there's not much for you to say. If you're going to do something, then say that you will do it. If you will not do something, then say that you won't. Don't be the maybe person. Don't be the person who just talks and talks and talks because you have nothing else to do. Limit what you say to be truthful. And if you start governing yourself in that way, you're going to realize, Ooh, what I'm going to say, I'm not really sure is true, so I should just probably be quiet. It's a great thing, by the way, to just have nothing to say. It really is. Some people will look to you, maybe if you're the person who always had something to say, they'll look to you and say, are you okay? And you can say, I'm doing great. I'm not even going to be tempted to lie. Moral evil can also be something that goes against the legitimate human authority and uh, or it is any violation of the plain principles of justice and order. You know, I don't want to get political, but you see what's happening in the world today with our politics? I mean, especially with the president and his son. Things where it's like they could have a vote, they have enough information to have a vote tonight to move forward with Articles of impeachment. But they won't. Why? Because evil's the way. And you know why a lot of Republicans don't speak out? Because they're evil too. 
You think, yeah, but he had a he had his sleeve rolled up in Iowa. He was for me. He's just so hard, you know, he, he's a hard working man. He's probably not. They probably did that to get your vote. Oh, they wouldn't. They do. They do all the time. And this is not to de- degrade our our government, but folks, there are evil people in positions of government. You need to realize that. You need to realize that. I want to look for a moment here as we're wrapping up the study on that word evil at Romans chapter 12. So hold your spot and go to Romans chapter 12. I want you to look in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. If you, have some, if, if you have a study Bible, you may have a paragraph heading here that says something like the example of a Christian or the Christian and those within the body of Christ. The reason why that's written is because this portion of Scripture is talking about how we treat one another. And it says, let love be without dissimulation. That's a King James word that means hypocrisy. So let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, which is a stronger word than hate, by the way. It's a stronger word than hate. So you would probably think loathe. Abhor that which is naturally and morally evil. Now, I added naturally and morally, but we're looking at the definition here, and there are two understandings of that. We should not support things that are naturally or morally evil. That includes our entertainment. That includes the people that we follow and listen to. We should abhor it. That is the beginning of knowledge. I guarantee you, if you do a clean sweep of your entertainment library over the next few days and let that sit for a month, you will be a spiritually cleaner person. You don't have all that smut and junk right in, right in the forefront of your mind. Well, it's just entertainment. Well, what is it glorifying? I used to love watching TV and you know movies and stuff. You can't... There's, there's many times where I'm watching a film that I like and I know... This is not good. And it's not even stuff, you know, with sexual impurity. I don't even go near that. But there's a lot of things that I grew up with that were, I was okay with, but now it's like the Lord works on you and goes, is, is this a good thing? Does this promote what I say is the fear of me? And you've got to come to a conclusion. And it's that point, folks. It's the, it's the point of decision that will either... Promote your growth or hinder your growth. And I know it's, it's hard because we live in a culture where you know, these things are not, they're not talked about. It's not easily understood. And people have done a very good job of compartmentalizing their spirituality. Well, this is me time. This is fun. God wants me to have fun. He loves me. He's for me. And then they go and you know, they just watch filthy things. And it's like, but I like it. All right, well, what does God say about it? But I like it. Okay, so here's, do you see what's happening there? What I like over what God says. That's a, that's a problem. Let that man know that he's not going to receive anything from the Lord. 
Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22. Another really short verse, but it has a lot of truth in it. It says, abstain, which means refrain from, from all appearances of evil. All of it. Now, that either means all of it, or it means that you get to pick and choose. And you can't use your liberty as a license to sin. Galatians teaches that. We can't say that, well, grace is always going to abound over my sin, so I'll do this. Folks, it says to refrain from all of it. Abstain from all of it. Go back to Proverbs. We'll wrap up here. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. Let's look at the definition of pride and arrogancy. Pride is inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank or elevation in office, which manifests in its lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt of others. You see this in everything. Everything. People will go to the supermodel first, right? Oh, look at the pride and the vanity and the arrogance. But almost every right, conservative-leaning voice is full of pride. And it's gushing out of their mouth. I'll listen to some of these people and I'll go, they need to look in the mirror. (laughs) They need to look in the mirror. Why? Why will they not? Because of pride. They are lifted up so high that they are almost the exact opposite of the pride in their political opponent. Oh, so now you go, well, what's right? This is right. You do what this says, first of all, the world's going to hate you. You start abstaining from all appearances of evil, and they'll go, look at you. What, you think you're better than us? You know why they say that? You're a natural rebuke to them. Especially if it's other believers. Oh, well, you're just so much better than us because you don't go to this thing that we went to anymore. Look at you. Oh, wow. No, you're just following what God says. And if you've got people like that who respond to you as you walk with the Lord, you need to just see ya. I don't want to say cut them off because that sounds aggressive, but you'll have to do that at some point. Just naturally, the fellowship won't be there, especially if they're antagonistic towards you as you walk with the Lord. And that's okay, folks. I'd rather have one friend whose name is Jesus than a million who don't want me to follow him. Give me Jesus. That's all that we need. Look in Proverbs 11 and verse 2. You can let 8.13 go. Proverbs 11.2. I want you to see this definition or this use of that word pride. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. So the lifting up of oneself, shame, is is quickly coming for them. And I've seen this with some right-leaning political commentators. They come to this standard of moral righteousness and then some scandal comes out. And they are prideful people. But with the lowly is what? Ooh, wisdom. What does it mean to be lowly? Humble. You're not saying much about yourself because you know who you really are and you know who has the real power. That's the person that gets wisdom. The person that 
toots their own horn. Look at me. We're going to look at you as you get knocked off the pedestal that you've built. We're going to stay here. With, we're going to stay lumble, uh, lumble, lowly, humble. <laughs> New word alert. Let's define that. What's the definition? I don't know. Proverbs 16, 18. This is where we'll close. Proverbs 16, 18. My uncle would tell me this verse, and for the longest time I memorized it backwards. Um, and it was kind of a shock to me to look it up in the Bible and go, oh, that's not right. <laughs> Pride goeth before destruction. So think of this as the horseman and the banner of a king that goes before the appearance of the king. Lavish, royal, put together the presentation of power and wealth. And then there's the king. So if you're a prideful person, that's what's going before you. And what it symbolizes is destruction. And then it says, verse 18, and a haughty, which means a lofty, high-minded spirit, what? Before a fall. And it's a sad day when those who are believers in the Lord, when they fall because they've had pride, secret pride in their life for years. Dr. Arnold used to say, when you have somebody of, of high regard and highly esteemed in the body of Christ that's lifted up with pride, they rise silently. Whatever sin it is, whatever temptation that they're failing in, it rises silently. But when it crashes, it's like a huge stone in a still lake. There's the breaking of the water pressure, uh, the, the surface tension and the the plunge, and then at, at the site, there's all this damage, but then the ripples come out. And it takes a little bit of time, but then the shoreline gets rocky. And the waves start lapping up. That's how damaging it is to fall. First Corinthians tells us, if any man thinks he stands, let him take heed. So what do we do then? Are we not supposed to have any confidence? Are we not supposed to... You know, are we just supposed to think so pitiful of ourselves? No, you look to the Lord, you trust in Him, and you stay low. You will naturally. The world will keep you there. And it's a great place to be. Humility is a great place to be. And I don't mean public shame, but just being humble. Hey, it's not about me. I love the humble athlete. The guy that goes out there and he's not pumping all the, you know, it's in baseball today. These guys, they're all out there, they... These guys are, you know, you give them 10 swings, they're going to miss seven times. One time they pop it over the fence and they're doing the bat flips and the little trots and stuff. Look, that's great. Well, you're probably going to strike out 75 more times this season. <laughs> like, I like the athlete that is humble, not prideful. The best player in the game right now, this guy doesn't have a home run trot. He doesn't have a big bat flip thing. He doesn't have some thing he does at third base. And he's raking He's just a humble guy playing the sport. I like athletes like that. It's a good picture of how we should be in the Christian life. Humble. I know where the power is. It's in the Lord. It's not in me. I'm His messenger. So I'm going to do what I can where I'm at, bloom where I'm planted, and I'm going to hate pride. I'm going to hate the evil way, the froward thing. By the way, froward, last definition. Perverse, that is turning from with reluctance not willing to yield or comply with what is required. 
Is there a lot of froward teaching in our culture today? This message of do what you want, unyielding, ungovernable, they cannot be controlled, disobedient, like a disobedient child. That's the definition of the dictionary, by the way, not me personally. But you can see it in children, right? They have a will. They want to do what they want to do. Oh boy, we're seeing it with Remy. Eight months old? No way. Yes way. Yes way. Who taught her that? Well, she was born with it, you know? But probably her mother, amen? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That doesn't come from either one of us. She's got a sinful nature. It's been passed down. We didn't sin like Adam, but the Bible says we're all sinners. And that doesn't mean you hate people, by the way, because some people take this to the extent, you can close your Bibles, they'll take it to the extent where they're like, well, if it says to hate evil and, and, and pride in the evil way, then I've I got to hate people. No, you need to love people, but you need to hate the appearance of those things. And if you have a, if you have a little uh, guest room, so to speak, in your life for evil, prideful, and froward, perverse things, you need to destroy the guest room. You need to uninvite those things. And you'll be better off for it. That's how you're successful. It's not getting up at 5 a.m. It's not taking cold showers. It's not cutting off coffee. You know, those things may have some material success, some worldly success, but you want to be successful in the eyes of God, you hate those things. And you, you do not have a space for them in your life. Otherwise... You're going to be that double-minded man. And you wonder why you don't have blessings and it's unstable. You're allowing these things in your life. You need to exercise them out. Does that make sense? I pray that it's been helpful to you. This hand is going to represent you and me. My wallet is going to represent our sin. And we've all got it, folks. doesn't matter the amount. We've all got it. Put it on top of my hand because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. You have to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven without any spot or blemish, no sin, and we all fall short. That's the definition of sin. It means to miss the mark. But God, he loves us. He hates the sin because it causes separation. And so he did something to pay for this sin. None of us could do what was required, which is we've got to die. Somebody's got to shed blood for this sin. And even then we'd spend an eternity in hell. But this hand representing God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, He died the death that we could not die. He was perfect. He didn't have sin on Him. But He loved us so much that He became that sin for us. What a beautiful statement. God sent His Son to become that sin for us. He took that payment. He was... He died on the cross. He was buried and He rose again three days later. And this is the promise that He says, you believe... On me, you'll have everlasting life. And you'll never be brought into that condemnation again. You're passed from death unto life. And I'm holding on to you. And I'm not going to let you go. And the Father's holding on to me. I and my Father are one. That's why we can know. Once you put your trust, when you believe on Jesus Christ's payment for your sin, 
you receive everlasting life. And that's as long as it lasts, everlasting life. So now as we walk with the Lord and the things that are evil and prideful and arrogant and perverse, that sin, we, we need to keep it off. This is who we are in Christ. Why would we act like this? Why would we encourage other people to act like this? Shame on us when we do. This is who we are in Christ. Let us not live like this. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're watching on the internet and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, I want to pray for you. Would you leave us a comment and we will reach out to you. We'd love to chat. If you're here in the church auditorium, I know all of you. And so I continue to pray for you. And I pray that you will take a look at your lives and you know the things that you've allowed in there that are evil, perverse, froward, prideful, you need to take them out. If you want to be a man who receives great things from the Lord, you need to consider those things which hinder those blessings. God loves you. He, and he's very patient. But he also says that there is discipline. And that discipline is going to happen. You can avoid a lot of that by obedience and ask for strength. You will receive it. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Bring us back here safely on Sunday morning. In Jesus' name we pray.